Hi, this is Dan Schilling, author of The Power of Awareness, and this is One on One with ABC Partners. Hi, this is Dave Almey of ADC Partners, and this is a sports business podcast. It says so right there in the logo. So you're probably expecting something, uh, I don't know, related to sports business. Well, sorry to disappoint. My guest in this episode has never worked in sports. Frankly, he's not even really that much of a sports fan. So why on earth should you continue to listen? Well, because this episode might literally one day save your life. I met my guest Dan Schilling on chairlift at Alta Ski Resort in Utah. Dan, it turns out, is one of our nation's most accomplished warriors. In his 30-year military career, Dan was part of one of the least known but most demanding special forces communities. He's been around the world to fight in our nation's fiercest battles, including the infamous Battle of Mogadishu, a conflict made famous by the book and movie Black Hawk Down. Now an accomplished author, Dan's most recent book is The Power of Awareness. In it, Dan distills essential parts of his and others' training to help you gain insight into and better control of your surroundings. In this wide-ranging conversation, we talk about Dan's military career, including the Battle of Mogadishu, how personality and intelligence are keys to success in the special forces communities, his transition to writing, and even the one extreme sport that he won't try. You can learn more about Dan and his writing at danshillingbooks.com. Enjoy. Can you talk a little bit about how you first decided to enter military service in the first place? Was this something you had planned on all along or was this something that just kind of happened out of the blue? Well, I grew up on a diet of World War II genre films. Both my parents were in the war. My mom was a nurse. My dad was in the Pacific theater and I actually walked around Nagasaki only a couple months after they dropped the bomb. Wow. And all my uncles had been in the war as well, including one who uh, landed on D-Day uh, and got shot on the beach and then was killed in action six months later right before the Battle of the Bulge. But I had no, I had no aspirations of military service. I was a little surfer, then skier, kid, skateboarder in the heyday of skateboarding, late 60s, early 70s. And where was this, Dan? Uh, Newport Beach, California is where I, I grew up first. And then I moved to Utah and, and found that this was a better fit for me than the beach. I love the mountains. You, and, you know that, we met on a ski lift. But how I got into the military, to answer your question, I'll forever owe the girl I was dating at the time a debt because she reached into my chest, pulled out my beating heart and crushed it. <laughs> and I was devastated at the time. And I was I was looking for something to do. I, I had been going to college off and on. I wasn't a very good college student. I mean, I went back and got three college degrees later, but I, I wasn't ready for that. I wasn't mature enough. I, yeah. I wasn't prepared for that. I didn't see the value. Like a lot of young people, especially I think, boys more than girls because we bloom, bloom later totally um, agree. and so I didn't know what I was going to do and I, I met this recruiter who told me 
we will pay you to jump out of airplanes. And it had never <laughs> occurred to me to jump out of an airplane. And I'm an adrenaline-fueled cat, as I don't you know, think but... that occurs to a lot of people, if I'm being totally honest, but okay. No, but it was very appealing. <laughs> and I thought, you know what? Screw it. I'm in. So I actually joined the military as a an 11 Bravo Army Infantry Paratrooper. And I, I liked being a grunt. It was, I found a place, I had a lot of energy. And okay. it, it was a meritocracy. Doesn't matter your background. I was sort of a middle-class kid. I didn't come from really humble beginnings, but we weren't rich. I was just your average American white kid. Yep. And uh, I found a place that you you could blend in with all these dudes, like crazy Italians from New Jersey and Puerto Rican dudes from, you know, from the island. And uh-huh. everybody sort of blended and nobody cared as long as you could perform. And that was the first time I found myself in an environment. I felt that the more I worked, the the more I would benefit and the more opportunities would come my way. And that's how I joined the military. All right. So your heart gets ripped out. It gets crushed. You say, thank God for that girl. Thank God for that girl and the devastation she wrought in your life. She brought you to the military. You start off as, to use your phrase, straight up grunt, army infantrymen jumping out of airplanes. But that start kind of led to the first step, and I don't know if I would call it unconventional military career, but it's certainly not the path that most people take because you made the transition from the Army to Air Force Special Operations. That wasn't at the time a very common thing that people did, was it? No, and nobody, even now, people are not familiar with the the community that I landed upon, which is yeah. U.S. Air Force Combat Control Teams, or CCT, as they're known by the acronym, the same way you do with SEALs or SF for Green Berets. But yeah, I was in the Army, enjoying myself, humping a rock in a 60 machine gun around, doing the stuff we did. I was in a Pathfinder platoon, which just really meant we did a lot of air mobile stuff with helicopters, and we jumped a lot, and, mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And I went on a training trip with two Air Force Combat Controllers uh, doing night vision landings with with uh, MC-130 Talons. And this was in the mid-80s, mind you. So NVGs were a, a sporty thing. I'd never seen NVGs. And these guys were a, just attached to you with that particular environment? No, they were just out training. And okay. uh, we, we got the opportunity to send one or two guys. And I was a really high-performing guy. And my comp- my platoon leader said, we're sending you. So anyway, I'm, I'm out doing stuff I'd never seen before. And I'm talking with these guys. I'm like, you're in the Air Force? Like, the Air Force is full of wussies. Like, what, what are you guys? And they're you talking about the like, Air they, right, yeah. they were scuba. But I will never forget this. A guy named Pete Neal, who is the reason I joined and got into the Air Force into combat control, said, we also get pro-pay. And I was like, pro-pay? What, what the expletive is pro-pay, pay, yeah. And he said, that's cool guy pay. <laughs> And I went, I'm in. I knew this is where I was destined to go. And um, I did this sort of uh, bait and switch paperwork drill. I went, found an Air Force recruiter. I'm like, hey, I'm in the middle of an Army enlistment, and I want to join the Air Force and be a combat controller. He didn't even know what those were. So he looks them up. He's like, okay, here's all this paperwork. Yeah, they exist. If you can get your commander to sign this document, I can get you into the Air Force. So I went back to my, my company commander, and I'm like, hey, I think I'm really, I want to go into the Air Force and do this thing. And I explained it all to him. And he's like, well, I'll tell you what, Schilling, if you can get the Air Force to take you, I'll let you go. And I'm like, funny you should say that. I slid this paperwork across the desk. I'm like, here it is. And to his credit, he was boxed in and they didn't want to let me go, but he let me go. And I 
entered Air Force Combat Control, and you know that. But was, you entered the Air Force without any guarantee that you would be able to become a combat controller, because absolutely, I if I didn't make it, I was going to be a cook or but you know a cop or some other job that are are they usually have a lot of vacancies for. Those are great jobs for a lot of people. I don't want to denigrate them, but those are those are must fills that the Air Force uses or I was going to be a maintenance groundskeeper mowing lawns. Who knows what they were going to do? A, a high energy cook for the Air Force is probably Yeah, I was not I was not going to I wouldn't do that well. And so anyway, yeah, it was you know when I arrived there that that training pipeline we can talk about this some more. You know, combat control is the longest most intellectually demanding as physically demanding as any other pipeline most expensive training pipeline for special operations in the world and so when i went there was like 150 guys by the time we were starting my my cohort and by yeah. the time i graduated you know about two years later there were six guys from my original class six out of 150. i think it would be helpful because you know, this is <laughs> this is nominally a sports-related podcast. Oh, that's right. I, I forgot. So, so, I think it'd be helpful. Can you break down what the role is of an air combat controller? Because you're right; it is kind of a nuanced thing. And, you know, everybody knows the SEALs, and everybody's heard of Rangers and Green Berets and things like that. But this is a this is a community that is separate and distinct from those in a pretty powerful way because they end up integrating a lot with those other groups. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that and, and what that means? I can. And you touched on a, a core principle, Dave. Air Force combat controllers, and I love to leap with this, are the deadliest individual to walk a battlefield in the history of 60,000 years of human warfare. And, and you've never heard of these guys. Right. Most people who are listening to this podcast will have never heard of, of a CCT or an Air Force Combat Controller. And the reason that they are as deadly as they are goes back to this role and the discipline uh, that they fill and they train for when they get into, the, uh, into anybody else's battle space. So mm -hmm. we call them a combat control team, CCT. But in fact, what happens is you, you train with all these other controllers and then you get farmed out to a special forces ODA in a team or a steel platoon or a ranger platoon or the Australian SASR. And oh, so you, you go cross country and everything. Well, yeah, I've worked yeah. with Germans, Israelis, Norwegians, Brits. I mean, the list goes on and on. Okay. And, uh, and that's one of the benefits of this job is you get to work with the best of everybody's communities, but your job is to be the foremost expert on applying air power into the four-dimensional battle space. Nobody can do that the way these guys do. And the reason that I say that they're the deadliest individual to walk that battlefield is, if you and I are in a gunfight, say you're a Green Beret and I'm a combat controller, we're in a gunfight and we're shooting at bad guys. Your ability to shoot and kill enemy on the battlefield is limited to a kinetic point to point. You have to, on your side of the camera, you've got to get your little gun, you got to point it at me if I'm the bad guy and you got to pull your trigger and that telemetry has to line up the atmospheric conditions and topography and all these things. But it's a it's a point to point one to one mm -hmm. uh, engagement. And that's as effective as you can be, even with a crew served weapon, heavy machine guns or grenade launchers. You're not killing that many people. My ability in that battle space while you're shooting bad guys. I can wield and fuse that air power up here with this guy on the ground, which is me, in a, such a sophisticated way that 
nobody else in the world can do. I can put air power on that spot at the time it needs to be there, provided I've got the air assets. And so I'll, I'll, I'll exemplify this with a short story. Go. The first special forces teams to go across the border into Afghanistan in response to 9-11 on behalf of all Americans. One team had an Air Force combat controller, one team did not. That team that went forward without an Air Force combat controller actually were denied more air power because they kept screwing up their screwing airstrikes. Up. Not yep. that they're not competent Green Berets, they're not competent, especially at that time in the war, airstrike guys. And the other one had a combat controller named Will Markham, who's a good friend of mine. And in his first 26 days of combat, he killed more people on the battlefield than any SEAL in the history of SEALs in their entire career ever. And you know what? It was his first 26 days of combat. He'd never been in combat before, and he did 11 deployments. That's what exemplifies what these guys can do on the battlefield. I think it's such an interesting point too, because I think in like, when you think about popular culture and the, when you see like a military movie, right, you have guys on the ground and you have guys coming in the air and it's all this kind of activity. And like you said, there's a lot of kinetic things that are going on around the battle space. But what they really don't take into account is the unique nature of the integration between the two of those pieces and how they coordinate with one, with one another, which is such a developed and inherent skill set that is unique to the U.S. military. And it carries that guy who is responsible for those bombs, carries a disproportionate burden that yeah. is, is, and it's absolute, and, I, and, and this will help uh, sort of illuminate that. So if I'm attached to Delta Force and we're going to go out and try and kill Uday and, and Kisei Hussein, Saddam Hussein's kids, this is a real right. mission, right? Yeah, and it's okay. Delta Force that's doing this mission. And they're going to kill them with airstrikes using F-16s that are flying at 500 knots. And you want to put a bomb through a window to kill these guys on a second story building. And you don't want to destroy the rest of the building. And here's what happens. The guy who owns that bomb is the combat controller. So, by the way, when Delta Force, and you could Google this, they killed these guys. Delta Force didn't kill anybody. A right. guy named Mikey B, killed, who was a friend of mine, and yeah. I was an instructor at combat control school. Put that bomb through that window. Through the window. Decision. But here's the burden he carries. When that bomb went through there, and he killed him with the overpressure, it wasn't fragmentation and explosion. It was right. pressurization. Um, Delta Force is like, yay team, we all won. And Delta Force gets the credit for this guy's bomb. If that bomb fell short and Oof. he killed a friendly, everybody points the fingers at him and goes, the Air Force guy did it. The Air Force it. guy did it. So when you win, everybody wins as a team, and you don't get any credit as the guy. If you screw it up, you own all of it alone, and they will leave you swinging with that responsibility. And that's just the way that it goes. I'm not, I love Delta Force. I spent a lot of my time with a lot of those operators, and they are amazing people. But the fact is, my responsibility, that that lone guy yeah. who's normally the lowest ranking cat out there with these other dudes, it's a it's a it's really interesting. And it, and it causes you to develop a set of skills, including social skills that are very unique. For instance, if I'm going from a Delta Force team and then I'm going to go work with the Aussies, those are two very different cultures or, or SEALs are very different culture than, than Army Rangers or Green Berets. I have to be able to socially integrate into that culture like that. And I go from one culture to the next, literally sometimes overnight. That makes a very 
highly adaptable and a strong self-monitoring personality. I think it's lots of people when they, when they get their picture of special forces op and operators and things like that, that work for the military, the, the first thing they think of is usually like, you know, big muscly fellows, right? You know, the, the physically capable folks. Those guys don't do as well. Though. And they don't do as well because everything that you're talking about right now, right? Because it's not just, hey, of course you have to be physically capable, right? Yeah. As you just pointed out, your personality has to be able to be pretty fluid to be able to adapt to some pretty unique cultures to be able to bind with those cultures very quickly but in order to do that in order to bond to that culture you have to perform at their level have to perform so that's why our pipeline is so long that's why yeah. every infiltration method done by anybody green berets do not do wet deck submarine stuff or or very often they don't do closed circuit diving and infiltration type stuff they do have that course and they do do that but that's what the SEALs do. So if I'm going to integrate with the SEALs and that's what they're going to do, I have to do that. If we're going to go into a house and you're going to get in the train to do close quarter battle CQB, you have to perform at the level of those other people. So you have the same requirements of performance, but you also have all these other things we just talked about. And yeah. if you don't perform at their level, they're not going to accept you. Hey, because right. you you're still the Air Force guy. The Air Force <laughs> yeah, guy yeah, yeah. can do what we it. need him to do. Yeah, yeah. And it's um, it's it's really, that's why I really liked that part of my career was, yeah. man, you had to bring it, you had to stand alone, but you had to integrate. And it's just, it makes for an interesting career. Can you, like, there, there's, like we talked about, there's the physical part, there's the personality part, and clearly, and probably what people may not really fully understand is just how, that not only the training, but the job is so mentally taxing and difficult. Yeah. I mean, when you think back to both missions and training about perseverance and those tough moments, what did you learn about yourself and how to get through those tougher moments, both in training and in missions that you still potentially carry on and use are using today? Well, every, you know, everybody goes, has crucible moments in their life. Everybody mm -hmm. listening to this has crucible moments in their lives as well. It doesn't matter if it's on the sports field. doesn't matter if it's in business. doesn't matter if it's in personal relationships. A divorce is a devastating experience. Mm -hmm. And so everything, everybody goes through things like this. This is quite extreme. Obviously you are taking and saving lives, yeah. which is not something I take lightly. Some people are, some guys from our communities are pretty blase about that, but philosophically, I am not one of those guys. What's 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 really interesting about my experiences, and I will correlate this with the other best combat controllers that I have known, mm -hmm. they're all very intellectually curious people. <laughs> and it sort of forges that in you. And that's what I think that's what comes out of these moments, other than hard earned lessons like don't run out of ammo, which I have done. You know, don't <laughs> don't run out into the street to recover a piece of equipment that's worth less than the rest of the gear you're wearing and risk your life for that, which I have done. Like don't do Get that battery. Like that. Right. You, you, you do say I went out and recovered some fast ropes on a mission. And so it's like in the middle of a gunfight, which was stupid, and, but we were told to do it anyway, you know, all these things that you go through. So I have a lot of those. I, I don't want to bore your listeners, but I think a life born of this type of pressure and opportunity and, and level of the demands placed upon you it, it makes you this very versatile person, which is why I feel that I've been successful 
in a number of other disciplines. You know, I fly around the world speaking to people about resilience mm. and culture. I I get to write books for a living. I write music. Um, I'm not a great musician, but I, but I get to do these things. <laughs> I got you I beat there. It's fun to do that stuff. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I, hell, I get, I go, I ski 120 days a year and I do a lot of speed flying. And it's, it's uh, all the things that I went through have allowed me to walk into other worlds like Hollywood. Hollywood's a very strange place to do business. And it doesn't make sense to outsiders, but once you're in it, you understand why. So now that I get to be a producer on a film and I've, I've helped do some stunt work and I've, I've done you know, other things with that, my ability to walk on a set and not do something wrong, but also mm -hmm. find opportunity and, and, and then integrate I get to do that because I had these other opportunities and it's, it's an extension of that same type. Well, of and you spoke to it earlier, right? At the front end of this, right? It's that, that, that the nature of curiosity, right? Your willingness to be curious and learn about all these different facets of things that you're talking about here, right? Whether it's, you know, going out and speaking or being in Hollywood or, or learning a new extreme sport, which we'll get into in a little bit, that ability to be curious about the world around you and the tasks before you and the people that you're with really is a foundational layer, not just to your career, but so many things that people do on a day in day out basis. And I think there's another component that you didn't mention there. I was waiting to see if you listed it, but I, <laughs> but I feel very strongly about this, which is also the opportunity to fail mm. and, and to fail at things and make those mistakes because I've made a lot of mistakes and um, those they go hand in hand. The opportunity and success go hand in hand with the failure. And I think that's what I think that's a intrinsically American trait. Americans do not as a culture. We're a frenetic people. That's why we invent things like the atomic bomb, you know, right. small things and the yeah. Internet and the car and the airplane. Little and tiny, so, little tiny things you may have heard of. Small things like that, you know, <laughs> and so. But it, but those things happen here because it's okay to fail. If you're if you're starting a business in Europe, and the business fails, um, and you have to reset and go back and get more funding or do whatever, it's very hard to do that. But in America, you come back with the right product, and you show what you can still do. You'll have those opportunities, and I think that's one of the things that makes this country great. There's a lot of things that that make this country not so great, but but our culture is is one of those. And so I think. I think that's I think that's something that people don't recognize all the time. They think a, a success story is a trajectory that goes like this, and it's not. It goes like this, right? Let's talk a bit about the idea of failure, but more specifically, I want to talk about the perception of failure because you were intimately involved in perhaps one of the most infamous engagements in U.S. military history, the Battle of Mogadishu, yeah, uh, which most people are familiar through the movie Black Hawk Down, right? And I think it's fair to say that that's widely perceived amongst the general public as a failure of the, for the U S military. Well, that's because the public gets those things, that type of perception or their first understanding of a situation from the press. And mm -hmm. it's usually a very superficial gloss over because if you're doing headline news, it's gotta be a soundbite that happens in 20 seconds. Right. And so Failure, devastation, death, which is always captivating, accidents and plane crashes. That's why they're always headline news. I don't do any of that news. I do not do daily news at all. So can you talk a little bit about your role in the battle at that moment and why you believe that that's not that description of it being a failure is erroneous? Because it's 100 percent false. 
The mission that day was to go out and collect a dozen Somali National Alliance militiamen from a meeting in the midst, middle of a city of a million people where everybody is armed. And they've been experiencing a civil war for two years. About as dangerous as it can be. And we're going to go. So we're going to go downtown. It's like yeah, Salt Lake City is close by to me. It's like going downtown Salt Lake with 200 guys and saying, I'm going to arrest the mayor and the chief of police and a dozen of their people from their headquarters in the middle of the day. And they know I'm coming. You know what? We did that. We, we, we collected those guys and we successfully brought them back to turn over to the United Nations under the authority of the UN. Unison 2 was the name of this mission. And that was our authority to go forward and do these missions. And it was 100% successful. Why people get bogged down on, oh, it was a failure was 18 Americans lost their lives, which is a very heavy price to pay. But it's a shockingly small number given that we killed 1,000, 1,500 people, nobody knows. And, and so we successfully prosecuted this mission at a great cost of life on both sides of this equation. And that's why anyone who was there will tell you that was not a failure, it was a success. But the lens of presidential politics at the time, Bill Clinton, we don't wanna lose any more Americans. So right. we'll stop what we're doing right now. And that caused a couple of second order effects that were very significant both politically and internationally, that still reverberate today, 30 mm. years later, which was we went out, got these guys. The Somalis were scared to death we were going to come out because we we killed so many people in the gunfight that we were in. We didn't just go out to wantonly kill people. These were people converging on this gunfight. Converging on our guys. Right. And so the fact is we held our own and we were very successful. Now the Somalis were on the ropes until the president of the United States 48 hours later says, we're not going to do any more missions. You just told the enemy, you hurt us more than we hurt you. Right. And they played that card successfully quite well. Who can blame the Somalis for doing that? And to the public, that became a failure. And that just happens to be 100% wrong. So that's obviously an inflection point for your military career. But this is a 30-year year career. I mean, that's, yeah. uh, that's about as extensive as it goes. And you become... Um, I think it's fair to say one of the, you know, a principal architect of setting up so many things and so many things that the special forces now take as part of their training now, right? You, you, you taught Green Berets how to halo jump. Um, yes. You opened a special operations school in Oregon to, to teach tactics. Um, you're a combat diver. You, <laughs> I read this, you founded and commanded two special operations squadrons, one of which even the name is classified today. Yeah, right. that's true. So by any measure, one of the nation's most accomplished warriors, right? So, so here's my question. Can you think about sitting across the table from like a teacher you had in junior high school and describing your journey? What, what would their reaction be? Would they be like, yeah, well, no big surprise there. Or be like, what, Dan Schilling? No freaking way. Well, it's clearly the latter, but I'm not going to use a junior high teacher. I'm going to use my, I'm going to use a high school teacher. Okay. I, I took German for four years in high school and Miss A, as we called her, Miss Anderson was our German teacher. And it wasn't a big group. It was like year one, there was like 15 kids. And then by year four, there's like six of us left in the class. Anyway, she knew me quite <laughs> German's well. hard. And, and German was an interesting language to learn. And um, I enjoyed that. She so I'd say she knew me better than any other teacher that I had and, okay. and had a four year window to observe me. And she would say simultaneously, I'm not surprised he went off and did something quite so radical, yeah. but she would, she would not 
probably believed that I had the discipline to do the things that I later on accomplished because in fact, I did not have discipline when I was, <laughs> when I was that kid. You were pinging and, around uh, the classroom, weren't you? No. And, uh, and I was not academically <laughs> proficient. I was a smart kid, but I, I, I just never applied myself because I, like a lot of boys, man, you know, I think young men and boys get shortchanged these days because they're supposed to be in a box. They're supposed to develop a certain way. And I think we, we, I think young women in general mature and are more sophisticated than boys. And, and throughout life, my experience has been that most of the great women, I, all of the great women I've known have always been more sophisticated and, and evolved than I have been. And I, I, man, it's hard, I think, for boys because you're not ready for school. You're not ready for that kind of academic discipline at 14. Totally concur. I mean, if you think about what's expected of students today, it's, I think it's very hard for them. I feel it's bad focus and kids. attention, right? And, yes. and, what, and what have both schools gotten rid of in order to spend more time on academics and testing? And they've gotten rid of recess. There's, that's right. And, and you're also not allowed to make mistakes. You, the kind of failure, the kinds of things I did in high school, my God, <laughs> I don't think they would have let me graduate. Like, listen, right. like, this was the 70s. And uh, I'm not saying... We were good kids, but like, you know, I had a five gallon gas can and a rubber hose. Like I know how to siphon gas. And so we, you, and we drink beer and um, I'm not advocating for those things. I don't think we were ready for that stuff, but, but we went down a lot of those paths to a greater extent or a portion of our, my high school class did things like that, that you're, you're not allowed to do now. And, 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 but concurrently kids also are exposed to so many more things that require more maturity than what we had, you know, Amen. pornography and all these things that are just prevalent uh, anywhere. Th I think those are hard things to deal with. And I feel bad for those kids and, I, and I, I want them to do well. It's one of the things that it's one of the reasons I, I like flying around and speaking to people is I like helping other folks with those kind of problems. Well, it's fascinating, too, because you come from this experience where you did struggle in those younger years in junior high school and high school and then did oh, yeah. find the path that allowed you to become the person that you were clearly meant to be. It took time and the path wasn't necessarily traditional. You, you experimented with college and that wasn't the right fit at that time, but it was later. So I think for, you know, to expand upon this point for just a bit before we get into how you started making the transition to writing is that there's just not one path, right? It's not just necessarily you go to high school, you go to college, you get the job, you get married and go, right? Because People are not stamped out of a cookie cutter. And I, I agree. And I think, I mean, it's a Bob Dylan's song, you know, he doesn't know what, what people do with their lives. And I, I forget what song it is, but you know, it's like, it's like people who are interesting are still figuring themselves out in their thirties and forties and even fifties. I'm still figuring myself out. Amen. Thank God for my wife because she's figuring <laughs> me out. I'm a, so that helps. But I, you know, I think, I think, that's one of the things I offer to people, even in, if you are listening to this and you're in your forties and you're in a career spot that you're not happy with, you know what? I, I happen to so believe that's okay. It, and maybe you to do something radical, maybe you don't, I'm not advocating for radical things, but that has always worked with me because my entire career, again, it has not been, it wasn't one of these sort of went up in a chart right? and it went all over. It's like a Rorschach blot. It just, Splat. It makes no sense to anybody, but I, but I have found that for me, that has led to 
more opportunities. And I think life's about taking opportunities. And this is what we're talking about before. Failure is part of opportunity. And don't be afraid of that. I'm really intimidated by being a writer. I struggled with calling myself a writer for a very long time. And a friend of mine who's a very successful writer, multiple New York Times bestselling books, he's like, why don't you call yourself a writer? I'm like, well, I've only published two books at the time. He's like, <laughs> that's a writer. <laughs> he's like, it's two more books than most people have written. <laughs> but I feel like an imposter. And you know, I mean, Agatha Christie, the world's foremost writer of her genre, and in many ways set a standard for storytelling that people still try and emulate, emulate through her whole life felt like an imposter. So if you're listening to this and you're not sure if you're even an adult and you're 45, who gives a shit? Yeah, exactly. That's right. But you made such a great point, right? Because here you are, 30-year military career, it ends, and you make this pretty fundamental shift from this very, very significant shift, yeah. High adrenaline, deeply involved military career to writing. <laughs> Which, you but, know, but you know, do you know the reason why for me? And, and I hope this has benefit. I felt that by, I wanted to tell stories. So you have yeah. to have a passion for what sure. you're doing. Um, I think if you're trying to reinvent yourself, do it for something that you want to do. But for me, it, it, it was a way to continue to evolve. I had done a lot of physical things and, you know, I have a world record for base jumps and I, I've done a lot of things that were, are quite extreme, but this is something that you can do the rest of your life. John right. Le Carre, another great writer who I, greatly uh, respected and hate because I'm never going to be as good a writer as him <laughs> was writing. I got his, um, which is silver. I forget the name of his, but um, silver view or something. It's his last novel. He was in his almost 90 and you can, this allows you to continue to try and evolve and become a better person and, and challenge yourself and take more risks because I have this great little brand, Black Hawk Down and special ops guy and, and, and get this world record extreme athlete. And that's great for your jacket. But the fact is you can either write stories or you can't. And I'm not a natural sit down, write stories. I didn't write as a kid. I, I, I fell out of high, uh, junior high class. They actually sent me back. And then I caught up with my peers again later. I mean, I couldn't do any of that. Mm -hmm. But this forces me to stand on my own two feet. And either I can write stories or I can't. Had you always wanted to tell stories? I mean, was this oh, like no. even? Or no, did no, it I just... don't think so. No, it came to you later. It came to me later. It came to me in the course. What what really set me on the path to becoming a writer, I think, was when Black Hawk Down came out. Yeah. And Mark Bowden wrote this book, and it's a great book. It's really he was an investigative journalist. He did a great job of of of, of trying to take a very complex story and make it digestible for a for a layperson. And um, and when I I got involved with that and helped him with a number of things in the book. And when I became a part of history, mm. all of us on that mission, because it still resonates with people 30 yeah. years later, I realized the value of the story. And I thought that's, I never had thought about, it was an epiphany. And I thought I should do something like this. And I know a lot of great stories and I, and I've been around a lot of interesting things. And I've also been fascinated by stories. And it, during this time in going into the two thousands, uh, I was struggling with a number of things in my life personally, even on the outside where I looked very successful. Yeah, yeah. I'm a squadron commander. I had a baseball record. I had done all these Black Hawk Down. I'd already done all those things. I was struggling inside, and a book that I read saved my life. Hmm. And that's not hyperbole. And so I realized, man, the power of the written word is so much more 
than what you see on a screen, whether it's a podcast or a movie. But the first book is The Battle of Mogadishu. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, obviously, write what you know, right? So having been there, you have, there, to, start there. You have yep. to start there. Was this a catharsis for you, or was it a more point point of getting setting the record straight? I mean, I mean why why revisit was obviously a pretty such so such a significant moment. You're going to be so disappointed with this answer. I can't wait. I did the Battle of Mogadishu with my good friend Matt Eversman, who was a ranger, mm -hmm. and uh, he got a book deal. And he had never written books, and he knew I could sort of write. And he approached me and said, "Listen, this is, I think this is a book." This, I got this book deal. Let's do it together. Yeah. And um, I realized, because at that point I was thinking I would like to write books later. And I know if you've written a book successfully, it's much easier to get an agent. Right. So I, I dove into that with all, all, all every fiber of my being to make it the best book I could um, with these other guys. And because it would get me another book deal. I did not want to write about Mogadishu. I did not want to write about my own experiences. If you read Alone at Dawn, the next book, which is yep. about combat control in my community, nowhere in that book am I on the page. Even though there are a lot of things in that book that involved me, I did not put myself in that book because I'm not, I wasn't interested in in talking about myself that that way. And so that's why I wrote that book because I knew later I would want to write other books and now I am. So it was the appropriate step to get to the next place. And then after yep. the first book, Alone at Dawn, which you just mentioned, the New York Times bestseller. Yeah. Um, recounts the story of Medal of Honor winner John Chapman, a Air Force combat controller. Um, what 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 drew you to his story? Why why was that one the one that you wanted it to Well, I didn't want to do that book either. <laughs> but Dan, are there any books you actually want to do? No, the three books <laughs> I have published, none of them that I want to write. And maybe maybe there's a lesson in there. I don't know what it is. Right, write but, what you don't but, want to. But yeah, write what you know, but what you don't want to. Well, so I was writing, I retired and I'm writing novels yeah. and I'm living in Alta and, you know, I'm skiing a lot and I'm, I'm enjoying time with my wife because we spent a lot of time apart. A lot of time apart. And so we're making up for lost time. We're one of those couples that really likes to spend time together. Anyway. I'm writing novels and yeah. um, I'm doing some consulting. I'm flying around here and there. And this story came to me. I knew John not well. He was a new guy when I was leaving the unit. And I, but I knew the mission. I'd seen the classified footage. It was classified at the time. I'd seen all the stuff. And the story came to me through another guy who said, Hey, John's sister's trying to write this story. And I said, Okay, well, I'm not really interested in that, but I'll, I'll talk to her and tell her how to get a book deal. And she'd been trying for like 10 years to write this book. Oh, wow. And hadn't gotten anywhere. So we talked. I explained some things to her. I wished her well, and I got off the phone. And for the next two weeks, I, I, I couldn't sleep. And it was just, it was haunting me. I knew John. I knew the story. I knew the guys involved. I knew the Delta Force guys. I knew the SEALs. I knew the other kind of controllers. And I realized, and I talked to my wife about it. I realized I had to write the book. And so I called her up and yeah, I said, hey, got its hooks in you. Yeah, I'm going to, this is what I want to do. If you want to be with me, you can be a co-author, but I'm not writing about your brother. I'm writing about your brother and his community. And that's going to be the book. And so she agreed. And that's the book that I spent two and a half years writing. And, um, and it took a lot out of me. I didn't like, there's a lot, there's some conflict and controversy involved in those stories. I don't like conflict anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm a Buddhist. I'm a very peaceful human and uh but i had an obligation to be i didn't have a right but i had the obligation to be the guy to really chronicle the history of this unknown community which is what yep. we started talking about yep. and john's legacy and uh, i'm i'm really honored that i got to be that person 
but you know, my third book is is basically how not to get robbed, assaulted, or you know, murdered using tactics from my community. It's another book I didn't want to write. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting too, right? So you, I mean, the first two books talk about obviously some pretty significant conflicts. Right. And being yeah. engaged in conflicts and the results of those conflicts, one on a massive scale with the battle of Mogadishu and the other with a very specific part of a, of a larger conflict with uh, John Chapman's uh, experience. Um, but the current book, The Power of Awareness, is all about more or less how to avoid yes. conflicts and how and that's to. That's why I find it appealing. But yeah. it was another book. So my. I'm very fortunate to have a very good agent. I've got one of the best agents in New York and how I got him is a whole story and I can't even believe it happened. Vol volume two. Yeah, whatever. Some other time. It's not a very interesting <laughs> story, but it happened. Yeah. And he kept telling me, he's like, I think you should write a book on personal safety. You've got this really odd career and you have all these experiences, you know, terrorism and, and crime and all these other things. And I said, Larry, I'm not interested in writing that book either. And uh, I want to go back to novels and Fast forward, I'm down in Baja, California with my buddy, and we're going to race in the Baja 1000 race. So we've been down there practicing. You get to pre-run the race course if you're a racer. So we've been down there for weeks. And on our way back to the United States, our race truck, our, our support truck, and all of our gear got stolen by Mexican car thieves while we watched from 600 yards away. Oh, you saw it all go down. saw it all go down. And we were on top of a mountain. We were going to go speed flying. And we saw these guys, you know, pull up and we couldn't get back there in time. And I was so pissed off as we walked across the border without passports, none of our stuff. Um, thank God for American Customs and Border Patrol because they let us across the border. But the not too many uh, people say that. <laughs> yeah, not, not, and so I, as soon as I got home and I calmed down a little bit because I was so pissed off at myself. I called my agent and said, okay, I'm going to write this bloody book you wanted me to write. And that's the power of awareness. But I will, here's an anecdote that's kind of funny or, or, or it's significant in my life. The reason it's called the power of awareness is it's truly about how to be situationally aware and how mm -hmm. to connect with your intuition and utilize that as a tool. Because most people actually override or ignore their intuition. But the reason it's called the power of awareness is the book that saved and changed my life is called The Power of Now by Edgar mm. Toll. And that book saved my life. It helped me find my way out of some really dark places philosophically. And I, so in partial homage to Eckhart Tolle, the author of that book, I thought it was a very good title for my book. And that's why it's called that. You talk to an array of people. I mean, this is obviously you come to this topic with uh, a, a pretty significant depth of knowledge on the topic of the power yeah. of awareness and, yeah, that's true. and protecting yourself. But you also, you know, you interviewed a lot of people for it, right? FBI agents, detectives, spies, you know, a lot of people who are, um, you know, trafficking the idea of awareness and how to perceive their surroundings and things like and that. And the best in the world at what they do. I'm wondering what you learned anything new during your research that you hadn't maybe considered in the past. Well, so I framed the book around the dual foundation to be safe in your life and go about your daily life or travel the world with well-founded confidence mm -hmm. around those two principles, situational awareness and intuition. Mm -hmm. What I found that was surprising to me was the CIA officers I talked to and the other special ops people that I talked to and my own history, these are all people who are doing things 
the outlier in my book are the police detectives I interviewed. And the reason I chose to talk to police detectives is they're always dealing with the aftermath of a crime. Mm -hmm. They only come, they're only involved after something bad has happened. And what really surprised me, I, I spent a lot of time with this um, detective Starsky, I called her um, uh, to protect her identity. Mm -hmm. She was an LAPD detective, 25 year, so much experience, a wealth of knowledge. And she had done sex crimes for like many years. Mm -hmm. And the, the stunning thing for me was when she told me almost every survivor of a, a sexual assault that I ever dealt with said a variation of this sentence. I knew not to dot, 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 open the door, let them buy me a drink, cross the dark parking lot. They knew what not to do. It was their intuition. That's what was telling them what not to do. <laughs> they overrode that. And it was, and, and this was almost without exception, all these survivors of these crimes. And uh, I realized the, the, the real power of intuition. So that surprised me the most in the course of writing that book. I, I got to be honest with you. I read that part of the book and applied. I was just in an airport two days ago and I was walking around and it's really interesting to me because you do discount intuition. Oh, it's kind of like, a, oh, that's, a, that's like a woo woo thing. Like what, what the heck does that mean? Intuition anyway. But when you start to apply those pieces, you really start or I began to see things differently. You do. And I see things differently, too. In fact, the surprising thing for me wasn't just that piece of knowledge that I got to incorporate into my approach to being not a victim of a crime. It was how much I now apply more of my intuition, because I've always been a pretty intuitive person and I've mm. used it. But I realized I didn't really understand I was using it. To your point, Dave, now that you're aware of your intuition and you you look at these situations differently it will you'll reinforce this and it will speak to you more and what's so great about intuition is it's a million years of evolution <laughs> yeah. that is trying to save your life you're right if you just don't ignore it and every ancestor you and i had going back several hundred thousand years who all survived improbable odds to live long enough to find a mate procreate have offspring that survived to produce you, those odds are staggering. I have an ancestor somewhere down the road who just yeah. knew, knew not to let that saber-toothed tiger into the cave. It was a terrible, terrible idea. And they well, listened. What they, what they knew was <laughs> they didn't know there was a saber-toothed tiger out there, but something was causing them to stop. Yeah. What that was, was consciously they didn't know there was danger, but subconsciously your body knows when you're at risk and it will try and speak to you. I think it's just this idea of giving yourself license to believe or understand or have value in the hairs going on the back of your neck, right? There is this part of you that you may not fully understand, but has real practical application and to the point in the book can be trained. You can, you can learn to listen to it. And here's two absolutes I will share with you. And I rarely speak in absolutes, but the thing, the two things that are 100% absolutely true about intuition are this. The first is, if it's speaking to you, it's reacting to something existential. There is something there. You may not know what it is. You may not even have any inkling, but it's reacting to something that is really there. And the second thing that is absolutely true, it is 100% in your interest to pay attention to that voice. Yeah. You may ultimately decide, I'm going to override it, but if you're doing that consciously and say, I think it's okay to walk to my car across this park parking lot, I've looked enough, that's different than 
ah, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to, it's going to be okay. That's where people get in trouble. And this is why, again, for me as a, as a, I guess, really as a pacifist and a Buddhist, I don't do teach self-defense. I don't carry a gun anymore. I, you know, I used to be one of the world's best combat shooters. Mm -hmm. I don't believe you have to carry a gun because if you are aware and you're armed with your intuition and situational awareness, and I don't want to bog down on that, but I, I teach that a lot. Mm -hmm. You're not going to get into that situation. You'll never be in that situation. Or mace or a martial art. Yeah. And I believe in that. Dan Schilling, the book is The Power of Awareness. You can go to danschillingbooks.com and yeah. uh, to find more out more about that. I want to say thank you for the time. But before I let you go, uh, I am going to put you into the lightning round. I'll give you a series of questions, Dan. I want hey, your Richard. quick and I want you to use your intuition to come up with the, <laughs> with the perfect quick response to each one of these questions. Are you ready? Fired up. Okay. Uh, this is nominally a sports podcast, so I need to know what your opinion of the new pitching clock in Major League Baseball is. I do not follow baseball, basketball, or football. So I, I think if it will accelerate the game, if that's part of what this is doing, it may be a benefit because if you're trying to appeal to people whose attention spans are shortening – you need to do things that accelerate. Oh, I, I, the, 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 that's the perfect response. Your favorite and least favorite MRE servings. So way back in the day. Lightning round, Dan. Not too many. Not, this is lightning. We got to go uh, quick. Cheese and crackers with Tabasco is my favorite. And um, ham and chicken loaf, which doesn't even exist anymore, oh. was the worst thing ever created for man to eat. Oh. <laughs> I think I got an ulcer just listening to that. Okay. This is a long one. You are... A self-described adrenaline enthusiast, okay? You, which I think actually undersells it a bit because we met skiing, which might actually be the most boring thing you do for fun. Uh, you hold the record for the most base jumps in a day at 200. Um, I had to look up what alpine wing is. So was there any kind of extreme sport or activity you won't try because it's so crazy? I will not wingsuit base jump because the physics is so narrow. When you make a mistake, you die, and I don't want to die anymore. Okay, good one. Uh, we met skiing in Utah. Please briefly explain the concept of interlodge and how tired you are of it at this point. Interlodge means the avalanche danger is so severe, we're going to lock you in your house with a chain, and you are not allowed to even go onto your property because the avalanches are there. And this is, we had the biggest snow season and avalanche season in the history, recorded history of our canyon at Alta Ski Resort. And uh, yeah, why? But I'll take Interlodge if it leads to more skiing in the most powder I've ever had. I, I, I did not know they chained your door. Okay, another skiing question on a scale of 1 to 10 with 10 being preposterously amazing. How great was the skiing in Utah this year? It was 10. I had the second best day of skiing in my entire life, and I ski 120 days a year. <sighs> All right, last question. Who's going to play Dan Schilling in the movie? <laughs> Marty Feldman. <laughs> <laughs> or Gene Wilder, if either one of them were alive, I'd pick Gene Wilder. Okay. Dan Schilling, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for spending the time. Thanks, Dave. Enjoy, everybody. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the One-on-One -on -one Sports Business Conversations podcast. If you enjoyed it, we always appreciate a subscribe, share, comment, or like. And don't forget, you can always find past episodes at abcpartners.com slash podcast. This podcast is written, produced, edited, and hosted by Dave Almey. And 
theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. <laughs>